G'day. Can you all understand my slightly weird Swedish Australian accent first of all? Fantastic, just making sure there's slightly weird analog signals getting picked up by some of the analog and some of the digital radio antenna here in the room. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. It feels sort of oddly uh, familiar in some way, shape or form. Uh, I grew up on an army base in Stockholm, Sweden at the K1 Regiment. Uh, my dad is a now retired colonel in the Swedish army and is one of the reasons I now find myself here as a Swedish Australian many, many years later. But we'll get back to this in just a little bit. I should say that uh, we're going to go at a fairly fast and sort of furious pace in here today. So all the slides are available for you to download courtesy of the Cove uh, on this little bit.ly. Uh, if you want to download them in real time, feel free to do so. Uh, or you could just follow along here in IRL in real life because it's way more HD. Uh, if you have a really analog soul, you can even print out the slides later on. Make sure you plant a tree to carbon offset that decision as well. Great to be here, ladies and gentlemen. I want to talk to you about the emerging technologies and perhaps just to build on some previous comments that we just heard about, it's been said that the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. In fact, new emerging technologies are somewhere to be found cross industry and perhaps this is why we're now increasingly seeing that the borders or the boundaries between civil and military are now increasingly blurring. Back in 2013, the then Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, in the United States, suggested to introduce a new medal, a medal that would essentially honor cyber and drone operators. What do you think the reaction based back in 2013 amongst veteran groups was like? Some veteran groups raised hell, particularly because of the precedence that this particular medal for drone operators and cyber operators would be given in the United States. And the suggestion, the proposal was quickly canned. But of course, the lines of warfare are now blurring. They're shifting from the analog world increasingly into the digital future. Back in 1931, the Country Gentleman magazine, again, the premier publication in the US agricultural economy, imagine what the farmer of the future might look like. Now, if we cast our minds, or maybe our grandparents' or great-grandparents' minds back to the year 1931, most Aussie, most American farms did not have a tractor. Most labor was done either by human brawn or animal brawn. And of course, heat mapping technologies, drones, and smart screens like you see on the right were a distant cry into the future. Yet somebody at that magazine, maybe a futurist, came up with that image that you see on your right. Now that future did not arrive in 2031, but rather because of the pandemic in the year 2020. We've all had to shift and participate in this science fiction experiment of work. The future of work arrived a little, soon, a little sooner than we all thought. The year 2031 arrived in 2020, and this is the kind of world that we now all live in. This also highlights that we've made this shift from essentially back in the image that you saw on your left, the second industrial revolution very, very quickly to the third industrial revolution. Now, now today, courtesy of cyber physical systems enabling seamless interconnectivity between the physical world, or as I like to call it, the analog world, and the digital world, we now find ourselves in the fourth industrial revolution. And the reality today is that we're all now technology companies or organizations with a license in our old industry. On Monday, I was working with a senior risk management team at CBA, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. They're a technology company with a license in banking. If you're a retailer today, primarily, you're a technology company with a license in retail. Now, as a futurist, I take a little bit of my credence from the old Roman god of war, Janus, who was said to have one eye firmly planted toward the future and one toward the past. So maybe ironically, as a futurist, I'm also a little bit of a traditionalist and maybe, dare I say it, a little bit of a humanist. And I want to explore with you why this is the case. Let me, before I talk about three major trends impacting your futures, and thank you for your service to Australia and beyond, why 
we also need to think about the past. Let me take you back for a moment in time to my native city of Stockholm, Sweden, to a time back in the 1910s when things truly were just a little bit simpler. Things were a little bit more black or white, a little bit more binary, things were just a little quieter. Amazingly, back in those days, people only wore black or white clothing back in Stockholm, Sweden. Things truly were simpler in terms of our fashion choices at the time. And this here was the urban vista that once upon a time greeted a man by the name of Jiori Juansson, or the son of Johan, which sounds very Viking-esque. We might just bring back down the audio on that just for a moment in time. Or George Johansson, as we'd call him in Australia. As the second oldest son on the family farm, he had few inheritance rights, and as a result, he had to make his own commercial future in the cityscape of Stockholm. And his commercial opportunity after completing a retail apprenticeship for nearly three, sorry, nearly six years, was to take his life and venture capital and breathe life into his first bricks and mortar shop in the analog world. His commercial opportunity was to dress the increasingly sophisticated Swedish gentleman of that era. Now this was a time before YouTube, before Zoom calls, before Instagram, Instagram husbands, even before selfie sticks when looking into a camera was still very much of a technological novelty. And in a cap nod of approval as he became a man of commerce, George Johansson, in a cap nod to his agrarian roots, would change his surname from Johansson or the son of Johan, that very Viking-esque name, to the man from the southern farm or in Swedish Jorosorman. He's my great-grandfather and as you can tell he must have also been a bit of a futurist because he's got an awesome haircut, uh, a cool little pocket square and where you can also see that we share some genealogical traits with North Korean dictators. He invested in the latest technology of the era, the neon sign, to win the then analog hearts and the then very analog minds of yesteryear's customers. But for my mother, Birgitta, who looks pretty amazing for a 106 year old, as you can tell, we moisturize in our family and she dresses me every day of the week. For her, the business environment has shifted underneath her feet. My mum feels very, very comfortable in the physical world, face to face, in the analog world, but she struggles with a digital world that she thinks of as digitally dehumanized. And for many years during an era of digital disruption, the way people interacted, of course, shifted out of the analog world into the digital future, a future she feels very, very uncomfortable with. Now, my mum is my toughest pro bono client, as you can imagine. By the way, she describes me as her son, the one who used to be a lawyer, who's now a glorified astrologer. <laughs> and there's no one like your parents to tell you what you truly do for a living. Today, of course, the customer will walk into the shop and after spending time with mum and her telling them about the goods, the family businesses around the world that she sources her products for, from, and after a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, they'll scan a barcode or two, incentivized with a 5% discount from amazon.com forward slash fashion to contribute to their real-time pricing cloud comparison tools, they'll say, hey, we'll think about it. And you know they're not gonna think about it. They then exit the store to the sound of a very lonely little bell, go around the corner and then order the item on mrporter.com uh, instead. This, of course, has been brutalizing my mum's business model. Now, COVID-19, we know, shone a light not only on underlying health conditions, but also underlying health conditions for businesses. And the fact is that mum's business immune system was not prepared for that future. The way she ran her operations in many ways in a very physical analog setting was perfectly prepared for a world that simply no longer exists. Now she is my toughest pro bono client and a few years ago I wrote a little love letter to my mum called Digilog, how to win the digital minds and the analog hearts of tomorrow's customers where I argue that mum, the digital future is not necessarily about throwing away the analog baby with the digital bathwater, but it's about embracing these two worlds together, the digital and the analog. Uh, unfortunately for me, the person I wrote this little love letter for has not yet read the love letter. <laughs> I feel like a stalker to my own mum. And you probably just feel like you're part of a family therapy session so far, okay. Now my mom struggles with change. She struggles with moving out of the analog physical world into the digital future. But of course, that's the future we've all been thrown into, whether we like it or not. Of course, the problem with change is that change doesn't really care whether we like it or not. My mom likes it or not, I like it or not. It's always gonna happen without our permission.
And when the rate of external technological change trumps the rate of curiosity, innovation and agility inside of an organization like my mum's little shop in Stockholm, Sweden, sooner or later we'll find ourselves in deep, deep trouble. My futurist forefather Alvin Toffler once said that the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And I think with 10 years worth of digital acceleration being compressed into a single year, that mantra has never been more true. In April last year, sadly, for my mum and my father, they had to file for bankruptcy. Now, they pointed the finger at the pandemic, people not shopping like they used to. But if they were truly honest, the era of digital disruption when they could have prepared, when they could have digitally transformed their operations, was really the future signal that it was time to change a long time before the pandemic was even on the horizon. We cannot use the metaphor of a black swan event like Nassim Taleb would call it, for being unprepared. The reality for my mom is that the way she ran her operations was perfectly prepared for a world that no longer exists. Now, can you imagine how annoying it must be to have a son who's a futurist, who meddles in family business affairs, okay? The research shows us that when there's a pandemic or when there's a recession, organizations that innovate outperform the competition. Now, in a business setting, in a civilian setting, what was shown during the Great Recession in the United States is that organizations that innovated during the pandemic, sorry, during the Great Recession, outperformed their peers by 10% during the tough times, but by 30% during the economic recovery. Could this be the same in your worlds? That it's the innovators, those who keep learning, those who keep relearning and unlearning a few things during tough times that actually excel beyond. When we do work with organizations like Microsoft or Adobe, by the way, feel free to do this little creative leadership test that we launched last year together with Adobe, Adobe CQ, C, of course, being for creative intelligence, we see that there's a trend that we all have to excel, yes, at STEM-based skills, sciences, technology, engineering, and maths, but that beyond the left brain skills that increasingly emergent as critical skills for the future are things like innovation, creativity, emotional intelligence, EQ, etc. We have to rebalance our brains because we know that machine learning and AI will do the left brain stuff really, really well. And that increasingly it's about our ability to hack new systems, white hat hacking by the way, that's gonna determine our success in the future. When we scenario plan into the future, we have to make sure that we prepare both for utopias as well as dystopias to take some advice from the old Greek Stoics, who as part of their morning routine every day, obsessed about imagining the worst case scenario. That's where our imagination has to go to these days. And in today's presentation, I wanna cover with you a quick futurist trend analysis tool. Some of you might use this from a scenario planning perspective, known as STEEP. STEEP stands for sociocultural, technological, economic, environmental, and political. And I want to talk to you about three major trends, some of which actually overlap between those. Some people know this tool as PESTLE as well. Uh, same technology, essentially. The first trend I want to address with you all today is this trend that every business model is now getting digitally hacked. And that things that we might think of as just cute technological innovations, even things like artistry and amazing technological displays like at this Guinness Book of Records attempt in China and we see this beautiful looks like Sydney on a New Year's Eve for example these types of technologies that seem artistic and that any early adopter or innovator might mesmerize that any tech utopian might get fascinated by is this just art and technology, or is it also potentially a show of force? Is it propaganda? And once that technology becomes weaponized, 
how must we think about the world, the increasingly tech-enabled world that we're now entering into and not make the same mistakes that my mother made just a few years ago. Every business model is now getting digitally hacked for better and for worse, increasingly at exponential rates. Now, the rate of change has never ever been this fast and will never ever be this slow again. When I talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, by the way, who just wants to retire before you have to learn any of this new shit? Okay, I'm just, just, just checking, all right. Quick piece of social research there. Now, back in the 1960s in Stockholm, Sweden, the Swedish government decided we were gonna shift. Now, it's hard for people to shift from the analog world into the digital world. It's also hard for us to shift lanes. Change management is one of those massively uh, difficult things for all of us as humans. We don't like change necessarily. In Sweden, we shifted from left lane driving to right lane driving overnight in 1967. The big change management mantra was just smile. <laughs> we're all just new at this. Isn't this a wonderful change management mantra, by the way? Just smile, we're all just new at this drone technology stuff. All right? You can see that it was every ambulance chasing lawyers, Disneyland. Let's compare and contrast that with the visuals that you see on your right. And imagine for a moment sending your kids, your nieces, maybe even your elderly grandmother confidently on her way to the retirement village across this little intersection. Now my mum says, Anders, the digital world feels a bit digitally dehumanized. But according to the World Economic Forum, in this fourth industrial revolution and the convergence of biological, physical, and digital systems, we'll be able to save 1.1 million human lives courtesy of sensorily aware devices. When I recently, or actually not so recently ago, returned from my most recent overseas holiday in Liguria, Italy, I would say that unscathed, I would welcome the day when humans are no longer behind the wheels, at least in Liguria, Italy. When I share this with our clients at Bharti Airtel in Mumbai, India, they said, and this is nothing new, this is what it looks like in Mumbai every day of the week. Plus we have semi-autonomous cows as well. Now the digital world can be increasingly sensorily aware, and this is also important from a risk management perspective. Now apologies to anyone who has loved ones, friends, family that were impacted by these two particular events or associated events. I do wanna apologize for raising them here in the room. I do also think that the second one is a heartening example of how the future, courtesy of digital, might also be coded for humanity. The truck on your left, ladies and gentlemen, was a truck that on Bastille Day in Nice in France in 2016 was hijacked by a terrorist. He then drove that truck for 1.6 kilometers down the Esplanade, tragically in the process taking 92 lives, 482 people injured in that event, and many more families suffering the loss of loved ones and PTSD. The truck on your right was built after a 2012 EU directive that stated that every truck on the roads of the EU had to be part of the Internet of Things, had to be equipped with sensors, and had to be equipped with an advanced braking system. Maybe luckily or maybe foolishly, the terrorist in the Berlin Christmas market attack of the same year decided to hijack the truck on your right. And not after 1.6 kilometers, but with his foot still on the accelerator, after only 70 meters, the truck shut down the terrorist. The damage to human lives, less than 10% of what we saw in Nice only a few months before. When my mum says that Anders, the digital world feels digitally dehumanized, I would also argue that we can code for humanity. We can code for protecting human lives and design our systems, both civilian and military, in a way that actually protects human lives as well. Now, if you're a real cynic, you might say, yes, Anders, we have to ensure that we invest in our cyber risk capabilities and that in the future, maybe ISIS just needs to send in the code and no humans instead something for us to be aware of, as everything that can be connected eventually will become connected. We have to make sure that we also work closely with civilians and white hat hackers who can show us what our weaknesses might be before a pipeline gets hijacked, before a hospital system like in Ireland recently was hijacked, or before hundreds of meat workers or meat processing facility workers are out of business like in some of the recent cybercrime ransomware attacks that we've been experiencing recently. 
The other thing that's happening now is that increasingly because of the digital interface, we can provide predictive solutions. Now, one of the biggest challenges towards electronic vehicle adoption in places like Australia has been what? Our sense of range anxiety. Where's the next supercharger going to, supercharger station going to be? Are we going to make it from Brisbane to Sydney, for example? Now, we can relate to this. Who here gets a little bit nervous when your iPhone or Samsung battery starts running on, on low? Sorry for raising all these traumatic experiences, uh, by the way. Who just had to check your phone? Okay. That yellow light is not a good indicator, right? So what's happening? So just imagining for a moment then that you're an EV early adopter, you're a Tesla owner, uh, and you live in Florida, and two hurricane seasons ago, you're fleeing with your family and your most beloved belongings in your Tesla, and hurricane Irma is chasing you down the highway. And all of a sudden, your Tesla battery starts running on low. What kind of glances do you think you're getting from the passenger seat as you're driving? Do you think you're patting yourself on the shoulder for being an early adopter of new digital technologies while the petroleum-based vehicles overtake you? Until all of a sudden, Elon Musk comes across the dashboard and goes, fret not, human. We've just remotely upgraded your battery via the cloud so you can safely get out of harm's way. What do you think your relationship to that previously cold piece of technology has now just become? Slightly anthropomorphized or humanized? Right, this changes in a, in a business setting, certainly our relationships and brand relationships to one that was largely between brand and consumer, one-way conversation, then through social media, a dialogue, to now a trialogue between brand, consumer, and now our relationship with the object, <laughs> that cold piece of technology. Technology that's increasingly enabling us to do less of the menial and the mundane and focus more on the meaningful and the humane. In fact, some technologies are enabling us to take the robot out of the human. But we're also seeing part of the human now being invested into technologies. Let me give you a quick example. We're super proud of it. It allows you to separate the bad guys from the good. It's a big deal. But we have something much bigger. Your kids probably have one of these, right? Not quite. Hell of a pilot? No. That skill is all AI. It's flying itself. Its processor can react a hundred times faster than a human. The stochastic motion is an anti-sniper feature. Just like any mobile device these days, it has cameras and sensors, and just like your phones and social media apps, it does facial recognition. Inside here is three grams of shaped explosive. This is how it works. Did you see that? That little bang is enough to penetrate the skull and destroy the contents. They used to say guns don't kill people. People do. Well, people don't. They get emotional, disobey orders, aim high. Let's watch the weapons make the decisions. And as you'll hear about today, increasingly, there are ethical questions about what happens when the robots and AI make some of those decisions. How does that actually define warfare? But you do have more military experts to talk you through some of those ethical concerns. We know that technologies and disruptions like the pandemic have had a tendency to really level the playing field and redefine who are the emerging victors. Now, I describe the era that we're now living in as the second renaissance, a potential flourishing of human creativity and innovation, not without threats, certainly. It's not Pollyanna-ish. 
But what we've seen before during recessions and big economic shakeups is that new business models emerge, whether they be about, be about cyber ransomware or otherwise. In the 2003 SARS outbreak in China, that led to and was a baptism of fire for brands like Alibaba, Taobao.com and JD.com some of which now, of course, are also collaborating civil and military together with the Chinese state to gather data about consumer habits, right? There is a lot of technological enablement that happens. Why? Because people couldn't go out and shop during the SARS epidemic. This was really the birth of the race between China and America when it comes to digital supremacy. According to Eric Schmidt of Google fame, he argues that by 2025, China will surpass the AI capabilities of the United States. Because of the pandemic, we can also see that most likely the Chinese economy will be larger than the US economy, not by 2030 as forecast, but now by 2028, or some people argue by 2026. There's a shifting of the axis of power as a result of this health crisis. Now, there was some research done at the, United, uh, at the uh, UCLA a few years ago when the researchers asked the question, would you, inside of your culture and your organization, offer up an innovation or automation idea if you believed you would have to do different work as a result of such an innovation or automation idea being implemented? Only 37% said, yeah. Then the question was couched in slightly different terminology. If you believe that you would be able to do better work as a result of such technology being implemented, would you gladly offer up an innovation or automation idea? 87% said they would gladly share such an idea. Ask yourself in your own culture, do you believe in doing different work or that, do you believe that courtesy of AI and robots that you might in fact be able to do better work as a result? Now the science fiction author Douglas Adams once said that when it comes to our reactions to new technologies, he's come up with a set of rules. Anything that's in the world when you're born is natural and normal and ordinary. It's just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between the ages of 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary. You can probably get a career in it as a TikTok analyst, for example. Anything invented after the age of 35 is against the natural order of things. Who feels a little bit like this? The good news is if we just retire today, the robots can never steal our jobs, all right? Best retirement plan forever, all right? Now, in our family, as you've heard, and like so many other families around the world, we've lost lives and livelihoods. But if I was going to pick one pandemic, hopefully it's just one pandemic in this era of superbugs that we were going to have to live through, I would still choose this one. Let's compare and contrast our current data-centric and human-centric response to previous pandemics. At the time of the Black Plague, the Pope at the time decided in a very anti-scientific move that he would kill off all cats because he believed they were the vectors of the devil. Now, they certainly were the natural enemy of rats, which did carry the bacterium at the time, which led to a third to half of Europe's population perishing under that new pandemic threat. Today, of course, we have technology. We have data centricity. We have a new appreciation of science like social distancing and being nudged into new behavioral thoughts and respect for our fellow man and woman. This data science is something we can utilize to our advantage through greater analysis and it's also something that we can use to scale our humanity through via the digital interface, such as through telemedicine, for example. But when it comes to data and technology, we also have to make sure that the data we collect is not biased and that it's good data that we collect. During the Second World War, Abraham Wald was a statistician who was deployed by the US Defense Forces. The US Defense Forces were heat mapping the bullet holes 
they came back on returned aircraft. And his challenge was to help them design a more armored type of aircraft. They said, based on all the holes, where should we design the armor? Who's got some thoughts? Yes. Where there's no holes. I'm glad I'm talking to a very educated uh, audience here today. Where there's no holes, of course. Why? Because there's... Didn't come back. Exactly. The aircraft that didn't come back, of course, weren't actually captured in the data, uh, the data scientific tools, right? This is known as survivorship bias. We sometimes have to look deeper into the data and make sure that the data we're, that we're looking at is the correct data. Thank you for getting it right the first time, by the way. There will be a medal for this later on. Okay, all right. This brings us to our second trend here, ladies and gentlemen, that is, which is that we have to make sure that we disrupt, but we also augment human technology. We will diversify our cognitive portfolios, both with technology, but also by embracing diversity inside of our organizations to bring better and innovative ideas alive. Now, courtesy of technologies, we're all becoming cyborgs, people whose mental and physical abilities are extended courtesy of new technologies, sometimes even implantable or wearable on our bodies. This is one of my little cyborg heroes, little Max Harpham. He's the son of one of my former colleagues and a good friend of mine, Emma Harpham, and her husband, Aaron Harpham. Really cool kid who would have navigated the intersection you saw a moment ago without any problems. And the cool thing about this is that when he was born, he was born profoundly deaf. If a freight train went past his back, he would have no auditory cognition of that event whatsoever. Because of a great Australian innovation in biotech, the cochlear implant, of which he has two implanted into his skull, one behind each ear, he now has a digital sense where there wasn't even an analog sense before. And his parents call him proudly their little cyborg. He's part of a movement known as transhumanism, which is, of course, the integration of humans with technology. According to the singularity timeline, which is when we truly fuse with robots in the future, according to that timeline, 2015 was the year when computing power trumped the brain power of a mouse. Amazing technological achievement, right? But because we're really at the knee of the curve of exponentiality right now, by 2023, machine power will trump the brain power of a human in New Zealand. <laughs> I always say the same thing about Aussies and Swedes, by the way, when I work with rugby New Zealand in New Zealand, Swedes always play both sides of the fence. <laughs> and by 2045, machine power will trump the brain power of all of us combined. I think in a race with the machines, it's time that we all partner up with those machines. Why? Because we can make smarter decisions in real time when we are augmented like cyborgs. When humans don't have data, oftentimes we suck at making decisions. To give you an example of this, the Australian Productivity Commission and the Australian Bureau of Statistics a few years ago teamed up to do some research in the context of disposable income. And they asked themselves the question, when Aussies say we spend $100 on something, what did we actually spend audited? Who's got some family members that you want to send along to this piece of research, right? When it comes to things like transport, we were actually fairly accurate. We say something $100 at the fuel gauge or the fuel pump last month, the real orders amount $104 comes out in the wash, depending on who's the CFO at home. Then it gets more worrying. When we say, hey, honey, spend $100 at IKEA, the world's largest contributor to the high international divorce rate, I can say so because I'm Swedish, the real audited amount was $132. When we say, hey, honey, spent $158 at the pub last night watching the cricket. The real audit amount was $158. And never, ever have your conferences near a casino, ladies and gentlemen. Because when we say we spent $100 at the pokies last night, the real audited amount was $735. When humans don't necessarily have data, we suck at making decisions, at least in a uh, personal household income uh, context. So let's compare and contrast what can happen when we all become augmented and digitized. A few years ago, a few too many years ago, I ran the New York Marathon and I did so spontaneously with 16 hours preparation. Don't try this at home, although you're all fit enough that you could do it. Two beers in Brooklyn to do my Dutch carb loading and Dutch courage building ahead of the race. I always sort of knew that the last 39.5 kilometers were gonna suck 
But at least to my aid, I had a little piece of digital software and hardware in my back pocket, courtesy of Apple's iPhone, Facebook, and Nike Plus. Every time somebody liked my little spontaneous New York marathon running, I got a little cheer through the earbuds, truly augmented. I could also tell the couple of times I slowed down to just hide from the world to go to the bathroom or when I sped up to go through more dangerous neighborhoods. Nike now knows that for somebody like me who used to run in Asus hardware, once I log into the digital software five times, I'm more likely to buy the hardware because of the software. This is known as nudging, right? And designing based on data, big data analytics. Now, for every breath I take, for every step I make, I know Nike is watching me. And if you think I'm moving around the stage a lot, it's not my natural state, it's just that I'm collecting points. <laughs> now, if I take a run and I try and overtake my competition sooner than at the halfway mark, and I don't have any digital data to show for that run, I feel like I have to retake the run, which according to my wife might not be such a bad thing. All right, there's no one like your loved ones to tell you uh, truly and give you feedback. The question here, whether in the civil or military context, is how do we use digital technologies and digital dashboards to make sure that we actually augment the humans that we work with? How do we give them tools to make smarter decisions in real time? Now, this also comes with some risk as well. When people start deploying these types of technologies, like you know, we can see and get insight into even troop movements like when Strava publicly announced where people were jogging at Kandahar Air Base as well as in Baghdad. Now, when it happens at Burning Man, it's not such a bad thing, but there's some intelligence in those two other images, aren't there? And increasingly, social media tools like Facebook can make better pronouncements and predictions about our human behaviors than even our loved ones, courtesy of the digital data. I would argue that whether it's in business or any other organization today, we can only really claim to be human-centric if we're also data-centric today. China knows this, and already 2018, when they had largely completed their social credit system, right, which determines whether you can take a flight based on your social media behavior, right, this felt very, very 1984 in 2018. Now they have 900 million internet users that they're gathering data from to make their tools even smarter all of the time. This means that we're now living in a pre-world, ladies and gentlemen. One that's predictive, preemptive, even precognitive for any fans of the minority report. What does this mean in terms of our ability to target both hearts and minds, both with soft and hard power? Here's an evolution of the little clip you saw earlier on today. Smart weapons consume data. When you can find your enemy using data, even by a hashtag, you can target an evil ideology right where it starts. Now the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. Any fans of or legal users of Netflix here in the room? Okay, some just use a stream off the dark web, okay. Now Netflix used to distribute other brands' content via a pigeon to your physical inbox. How much data did they get back when that was returned, that envelope with DVDs? Very little, right? Then they shifted to a digital distribution system, which meant that they could amplify their creativity and innovation, that they could start producing and inventing their own content. They knew a large portion of their database, pre-controversy, used to love Kevin Spacey. They loved David Fincher as a director, and if you overlay over the top of those two concentric circles, a UK success script from 20 years ago, even before you invest into making the series, you've got the recipe for success, right? Then they A-B split test every Pantone color before they get, gave the brief to their designers. Even the artwork in the poster is A-B split test and based on data analytics on how they could win both hearts and minds of their audience. 
to truly claim to be human-centric, we also have to make sure that we are data-centric. But of course, it's not just down to technology. It's also about the people that are part of our tribe, part of our teams. The research from Boston Consulting Group shows in a European context that the more diverse, the more cognitively diverse, gender diverse, ethnically diverse a team is or an organization is, the more revenue they earn from innovative products that they've invented in the last three years. Organizations that are not diverse are today paying a revenue penalty for not being diverse. We can in fact augment our humans by having people on our teams that sometimes might feel like a devil's advocate, who might challenge us, who might be that white hat hacker who's hacking us creatively for good, right? We need to combine the best of the left brain, STEM, as well as the right brain to come up with the innovations and the solutions that will truly be future fit. Which leads us to our final points here today. We are now living in a transformation economy, one that increasingly places a focus on trust, ladies and gentlemen. Nike understands that them as an organization, whether consumer facing or talent facing, is part of somebody's move up Maslow's needs hierarchy towards self-actualization, to doing purposeful, meaningful work. How do we participate in that new environment? How do we build trust for the talent of tomorrow in a world of truthiness and post-truth ideas. Trust, and the definition of trust, is a confident relationship with the unknown, according to my colleague and good friend Rachel Botsman at the University of Oxford Said School of Business. A confident relationship with the unknown. How do we get there? Largely, it's through great storytelling. To tell somebody why they should believe and trust in the idea of an autonomous car or even a digital currency, we have to tell them a science fiction story about the future and why they should be trusting the direction that we're heading in. We now know that we're living in an age of information warfare, of AI having the ability to engage and create deep fakes, right? making any international leader apparently say something that they may not have said, like this guy. Yeah. You blame me for interfering with your democracy, but I don't have to. You are doing it to yourselves. Polling stations are closing. You don't know who to trust. You are divided. There are strings we can pull, but we don't have to. You are pulling them for us. Who was not aware that Putin spoke English? Okay, and of course this is all an AI doing the leg work or the mouth work for him, right? Today some of us might love the idea of from farm to table food, you know, farmers markets. In China, 50% of all Australian wine that's sold in China today is counterfeit. Now, if you're just consuming wine, it might not be such a bad idea, but when you're buying say, food products or milk products for your kids, and they're done with chemicals instead of real milk from Australia, it gets worrying. This is food security. Today, there's not just stories about from farm to table to build trust with the consumer. Increasingly, that can also now, via the blockchain, be verified. Digitally traceable, true storytelling in a post-truth world. How do you, as an organization, tell a better science fiction story for the future, not just to build our soft power, but also to increasingly attract the talent of tomorrow. Now, futurists don't leave you with three silver bullet points to end all your uh, cognitive challenges, but rather we ask questions because it gets our creative wheels into motion. And my questions that I wanna leave you with here today are the following. Firstly, ask yourself, is your organization's offense and defense changing or evolving at least as rapidly as your most innovative threat. Secondly, how can we get two times the result with half the effort by using technology, but also human ingenuity? What's the compound effect of our competition adopting the right exponential technologies while we don't by the year 2030? 
which old analog processes that don't offer us any immediately actionable data insights need upgrading immediately? And finally, what would our competition not want us to do next? Now, I always believe that it's better to do a pre-mortem as opposed to a post-mortem. When we do a post-mortem, we can't affect the outcome anymore. Doing pre-mortems and imagining for a moment that we're science fiction authors for the business or the organization is actually something that puts us in a better place for the future. And the final question I want to leave all of you with here today is this one. Imagine that it's now 2030, and on your watch, your organization, or even your nation, went belly up, lost in battle, cyber or physical. What were the trends that you just missed? What were the signals from the future that we chose to ignore? And what were the human resource or artificial resource investment decisions that we just kicked down the road that led to that demise? And instead, what change will you make today to prevent that from happening? Thank you very much for your attention. See you in the future. Start preparing for that future because it is where we're all going to spend the rest of our lives. Thank you very much for hanging out here today. We do have a great. Any, yeah, reflections, questions, statements, challenges, we invite whatever. There's also a Swedish Australian microphone here uh, if anyone uh, wants to voice project as well. Yeah. We talk about AI or machine learning driven by data. What are your thoughts on being qualitative versus actually qualitative data? And how do you do yeah, so maybe a, a, a couple of, a couple of uh, reflections on that. I was, I was sharing a, a story earlier on, on today. Um, I was working with CBI Risk Management in the other day, and in that we used the example of the Apple card, credit card, uh, which was launched, I think, last year in a combination with Goldman Sachs. And it was very much heralded as this innovative digital new product launched by, uh, not a bank, but by Apple. Um, when Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple, applied together with his wife for two separate cards, uh, they share all their finances, their net wealth is, is on par with each other. She was given 10% of his credit limit. Why do you think that is? And do you think it was a good PR story? Steve Wozniak and his wife complained about this because this was all based on historical data, right? Which supposedly held and included some biases about supposedly women being a riskier type of personality in terms of spending. Now, Apple very, very quickly actually, you know, shifted things around to make sure that this bias wouldn't be there anymore. But we can see with artificial intelligence as well that when you just feed it historical data, that you can get all sorts of crazy biases happening. We spoke about survivorship bias earlier on today, but of course there's also um, biases such as if you today go and Google great CEO, you're largely gonna get pictures of what type of individual, right? Stale male, pale men, right? Okay? Largely and quite often over indexing with the name John, right? Now you imagine if you're you know, an emerging entrepreneur who doesn't fit that mold, are you going to be inspired when it's not someone that necessarily looks like you? I think the final comment would be uh, we were interviewing the uh, CMO, the chief marketing officer from Tata Click. So this is kind of the, the Amazon in, in, in India. And he said they basically discarded because the e-commerce behaviors were so different during the pandemic that they discarded historical data on uh, the Indian e-commerce consumer that was pre-COVID. Because they said behaviors totally shifted in terms of the customer journey that people went through. So they now have pre-COVID data and post-COVID data. 
So when they redesign a customer journey map for the future, they're doing it now based upon timestamp data. So I don't know if that answers your, your question in terms of, of data usage, but perhaps some, some case studies there that can help. We're talking about more. Yes. Yes, my name's Jeff. I work at Arnie uh, Headquarters. Um, I was just wondering how you rationalise looking into a big bureaucracy, which is Australian government and defence and all the processes which have had a long history of like systems engineering, actually trying to build processes to reduce risk. But taken away from um, your, your presentation today, it seems that really slows things down. So, so how do you rationalise what the big processes that we're dealing with now is that, is that question around you know, speed or enabling faster decision making? Yeah, so there, it's, it's, always, it's always a big question. I mean, even, even in other organizations that we work with, you know, in, in the banking space, for example, you know, they largely say that, hey, you know, while, while the fintechs and the innovators can focus on innovation and, you know, and the neobanks don't have to comply with regulation necessarily or certain types of regulation they're not uh, bound by, you know, the big banks have to focus on regulation while the other people can focus on, on innovation. So that, that's a huge challenge in those instances. I mean, what we've seen sort of work, I guess, over the years is either, you know, organizations, at least in the, in the, in the, in the business space, who've created things like skunk works, you know, innovation hubs, uh, you know, having, having teams um, collaborate on quickly bringing innovations to, to the fore. Um, I mean, the things that come to mind, and maybe this is, uh, this is Hollywood inspired, would be to think about you know, the skunk work team of data analysts during the Second World War who did some code breaking. You know, they didn't necessarily put that challenge out to the whole organization, but a, a, you know, a small, nimble team that could almost be a sort of a special forces team. So I don't know if that's the solution for, for you guys, but I do think there needs to be pockets of you know, futurists and residents or teams that can be tasked with, you know, innovation and digital transformation, for example. And then I think those also have to have a voice inside the organization and some direct lines of communication to, to the top echelons. Don't know if I've sold all your, your challenges in that comment, but are we heading in the right direction there? 20%. 20, 20%. <laughs> all right, we might have to continue this conversation because I am aware of, of time as well. <laughs> 